So you need a Bible, turn to your, in your Bible. If you don't have one, we'll, we'll loan you one here. Just raise your hand, we'd love to give you one. But uh, you need your Bible because we're teaching verse by verse through the Bible and it makes it a lot more interesting when you have the verses in front of you. And today as we're teaching through the book of Romans, not an easy book by any means, but yet a deeply fruitful book. We come to Romans chapter 6 and it starts out with a question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, another, it starts out with two questions, and so it's sort of saying, don't you, was there something that preceded that? I mean, it seems like he's sort of asking a question after making a statement. And you're, you're absolutely right. You, you've got to remember an important thing. When Paul or anybody else wrote a letter like Romans, they didn't have chapters and verses. They were added much, much later. A matter of fact, a guy by the name of Stephen Langton, he was a professor of the University of Paris, and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1227 AD, over 1,200 years, around 1,200 years after Paul wrote this letter. The chapters were added. Stephen Langton in 1227 AD. AD. Now, about 300 years later, a guy by the name of Robert Stephanus added the verses. And that was in 1551 and 1555. And he was just a, a printer, which was not a lowly job necessarily at that time, uh, in Paris, which right on the very cutting edge of uh, the printing press beginning, uh, the Gutenberg printing press not too much before that. And so this is how we ended up with chapters and verses. You know the real miracle thing about chapters and verses is we did this to the whole Old Testament. And when the Jews began to print their Torah, they accepted as Christians chapters and verses for their Bible. And so it's a it's a wonderful thing today if you're trying to talk to Jews about their own Bible. It's the same chapters and verses. They've accepted ours uh, for their Bible. And so, you know, Stephen Langton, when he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, was doing a lot of the ministry he did on horseback. And that's where he did a lot of the writing of his various books and, and letters, but it's also where he divided up the chapters. And so sometimes you're going through the Bible, you're going, why in the world did they break the chapter there? And some say the, the horse hit a bump. And it was like, whoop, okay, I guess that's the Lord, chapter division there. Um, and uh, it's sort of a running joke. I, I doubt it's true, but you, you sort of wonder sometimes why the chapter division is most of the time right on the money, but sometimes... And this is one of those that you say, you know, there shouldn't have been a chapter division here because the beginning of chapter 6 really doesn't work unless you start back in chapter 5. So last week we finished chapter 5, and in verse 20, going back there, let's look at this again. In chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. And so we're on this subject of grace again. And that's where the question comes in, basically. How do you deal now with this concept of grace? And, and, and grace, you know, I, I find that sometimes people still aren't clear on the, on the definition of grace. There's a lot of people who have done a lot of tricky things, inventive things, to try to give a definition for grace, but sometimes it takes longer to explain their definition than just does the word grace. You know, I, one that uh, a few of my friends like to use, you know, they, t- they take grace and make it an acronym, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, that's pretty, pretty cool. It's pretty accurate, but it, it's sort of confusing for me. Uh, God's unmerited favor, that's another one. And you say unmerited, I don't really know what that means, it's unmerited. Let me give an acronym for unmerited now. You know, it sort of gets a little confusing, but, you know, I just really want to simplify grace today. Grace is God's goodness, even though you're a turkey, okay? It's God's goodness, even though you're a turkey. That's, that's about as simple as it goes. I don't know if Spanish, if, you know, 
being a pavo it works, but but it's like this. You're being unkind, but God remains the same. He's the God of grace. He's just pouring out kindness on you even though you're unkind. You're a hateful person or a person full of hate. God's the same, and he's just pouring out his love on you even though you're hateful. And so we see in this case, even though you are wrestling with sin, God is just pouring out his grace on your sinful condition. And in essence, he says, no matter how much that sinful condition might abound, God's grace will be abounding more. So to whatever degree, your sin may be popping up or you're wrestling with it or it may be damaging God's grace is going to be greater. And that's simply it. God's grace, whatever it is, God is going to pour it out in a greater measure to overcome the weakness, the sinfulness, the hatefulness, the unlovingness, the unforgiveness, whatever it is, God is going to be there just pouring out his grace upon you. And so it goes on to say in verse 21, so as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So since God's just pouring out this grace, he's saying we're eventually going to win. Whatever sin is doing, God's grace is just pouring out in a greater proportion. So ultimately, you know, the hateful person, God's pouring out his love, and eventually the hatefulness gets washed away, and God's love is in the person's life. And now, instead of being the hateful person, they're a loving person because God's grace eventually overpowered that ugly thing in their life. Or you're an unkind person. God just keeps pouring out his kindness till eventually that unkindness just gets washed away and God's kindness is in its place. And so he's saying here, since we know that Sin once reigned in death, but now God's grace that is greater is going to reign in righteousness, not just temporarily, but for eternity. Now, how did we receive the grace of God? We couldn't get God's grace until Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. That unlocked the door for God's grace to start flooding in. So even though God was a God of grace, it could not reach us. It could not affect our lives until Jesus died and rose again. That opened the door that his grace might reach us. And so now through Jesus Christ, God's grace is reaching us. Not just temporarily, but unto eternal life. So now there's some of you here today, and you're going, Whoa, God's grace, I love this stuff. I can't wait to get out of here and start sinning some more. I was worried about sin. I was really trying to wrestle with sin and keep sin in a minimum. But man, Brian, your sermon is wonderful. I, I get to go sin a whole lot more than I've been sinning, and I'm better off than I thought I was with God. Well, I, I'm glad you, you brought that point up because this is what Paul is saying. What shall we say then? And some of you guys are, are there going, Brian, shut up, my teenage kid, he's been wrestling with stuff and you're basically opening the door for him to even go more into that. Or maybe the wife is saying, oh, I got my husband to come to church out of guilt and, and uh, you know, you're undoing my, my process of getting him to church every Sunday. This grace stuff is gonna really mess up our life. It's, it's, it's gonna really hurt our Christianity, you're really messing things up. You know, so I, I, I understand there is a percentage of people that are going to abuse grace or going to pervert grace or, if you really w- would, not understand grace. I mean, in, in essence, you know, the, the big bully comes over to a kid to beat him up and take his lunch money and, you know, the kid's almost as big as the bully and the bully may have a, a, a run at it this time. But when the bully comes over to start picking on the kid like he does the rest of the class, the guy says, you know what? Mr. Bully, <laughs> I'm not gonna resist you. 
You want to steal my money? I'll give it to you. You want to beat me up? I'm not going to fight back. Because I want to be your friend. Now, most bullies are going to be touched by that speech. And they're going to say, I would rather have a friend than just one more guy to beat up on. There's plenty of those. But there is the bully who would say, you're not going to resist? Well, good. Wham! You know, and, and, and taking advantage of it. But most bullies would be touched by that and say, hey, I'd rather have a friend than somebody that I might not be able to whip anyway. And so in essence, what are some people going to say then? What are you saying about grace right now? And Paul is asking that question. Once you understand grace, it's, it's a powerful thing that takes away the worry, that takes away the stress. It really destroys religion. Because religion is really people doing what they think God wants because God's going to, you know, thump them in the head or they're going to be on God's bad list or whatever. And so they're sort of doing what they're doing out of a fear of you know, I'm not going to get saved or I got to do these things to get saved or, you know, and, and, and it's really confusing things and eventually it, it, it creates this religious stuff that just is gross. And God hates religion. Jesus came on the scene, the religious people, his entire life were trying to get him to be more religious than he was. He never submitted to the religion. Eventually they killed him. They really hated the fact that Jesus wasn't being religious And so grace smashes religion. It says, in essence, God is going to stay the same loving, kind, forgiving person no matter what religious stuff you do or don't do. So what are you going to do with that information? Now, he actually answers the question that some might answer the question. And in verse 1 there of chapter 6, some might say, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And some people, this morning as I spoke on this, it was exactly what they thought. I can't get, wait to get out of here to sin more and God's gonna forgive me and everything's great. It doesn't matter how much I sin. And so Paul's asking that question for you in case that was your conclusion. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's his answer in verse two? Certainly not. <laughs> or there's a lot of ways of translating this, you know, abolish the thought. This is, this is ridiculous beyond ridiculous that you would even think that thought. So let's go back now. So we, we, grace is not the end of the story. Okay, a lot of times people say the conclusion of the sentence is grace. No, the, 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 the beginning of the sentence is grace. God is gonna give you grace. God's gonna be gracious and loving and kind and forgiving towards you no matter how big of a jerk you are. Comma, the end of the story is what? Well, the end of the story is not, well, since God's going to be wonderful towards me, let me go out and sin that grace may abound. No, that is not the proper conclusion of grace. It's interesting if you go back in chapter 3, flip over to chapter 3. Remember in verse 8, Paul gives a quote here of what people said that he said, and it actually sounds a lot like what he said in chapter 5, so I can understand why people were a little confused on this, but in chapter 3, verse 8, he said, and why not say, let us do evil that good may abound? Let us sin that God can give grace. If God's in the grace business, the more grace he gives, uh, the better God looks. Let Let me sin to help God out to give grace. And then he says, as we have slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So whatever Paul said about grace, he wants you to understand as wonderful and as wide perspective as it is, the conclusion is not (laughs) I've got it figured out here. I can go out and sin all I want and God will forgive me every single time and that's the end of this story. 
Back in chapter 6, Paul says, no, that's slanderously people have, have perverted the, the message of grace. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't stop teaching grace. Every time I teach grace, there's a percentage of people that, that start sinning more. And so since there's a percentage of people that, that say, let me go out and sin that grace may abound, I'm just going to stop teaching on grace because it's, just, it's too misunderstood. From now on, when I teach grace, it's going to be in a seminary class so I can really explain it theologically to him. Paul doesn't do that. He says, I understand that grace can be misunderstood. Well, I'm going to keep teaching it. And I understand there are some that are going to twist it, pervert it. Some it's going to set them free. But either way, I'm not going to stop teaching grace because it's misunderstood. So, you know, there are, there are some truths that... You know, it's very clear. There's not a lot of gray. It's a big black line, and you can see the truth and what it is and what it isn't, both sides of the coin. But sometimes there's truth with just a, a, a very fine razor edge. God is saying this, and then a fine razor edge. He's not saying that. And, and when you're trying to figure out what he is and isn't saying, you can't just look at it, oh, I got it, next thing. It's not like that. You actually have to wrestle with it and, and, and understand the various ramifications of what God is saying, but it's very precise. And what he isn't saying, it's, it's very precise. So Paul is saying here, let's look at the razor, razor edge. God did not give us the doctrine of grace that you could sin more. But in verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us that were excuse me, verse 2, how shall we die to sin, live any longer in it? So he says, guys, this is a reality. It's a spiritual reality. We can't see it in the physical realm. And so there, there are spiritual realities that we sort of see in part and know in part and understand in part. But if you remember back in Romans chapter 2, Paul said when we become believers, our heart is circumcised. And the old dead man, that old sinful man, is thrown away. And in place of that circumcision, God Holy Spirit comes to live in our life. And so he's saying here, if we have died to sin, we've been circumcised of heart, how could we live in sin? So if you would... There used to be a bucket where sin used to be able to go into. But when we got born again, the bucket got thrown away. And so now when sin tries to come and abide in our life, there is no place for it to abide. God's Holy Spirit lives there. And when sin starts hanging around, it grieves the Spirit. It quenches the Spirit. God's heavy hand is upon us. We, we can't if we've really died, if we've really been born again, this is a reality. Now, why do I bring that up? Because today we have the, the statistics, several different groups, many of them non-Christian groups, who are just statistician types groups. They've gone to various Christian colleges. They've gone to a number of churches, every denomination represented, and, and, and talked to adults and teenagers and, and have basically tried to figure out If what Christians believe today is the same what Christians believed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and you know what they've discovered? Not at all. That most people today who go to church on Sunday mornings or claim to be Christians do not believe in the major doctrines of the Bible anymore. It was interesting in each of the studies those in non-denominational churches believed it more than any of the rest. But it was pretty, still a pretty sad statistic. And I'm not going to bore you with the, the percents and all of that. But in essence, to give you an idea, they would ask the major population of Christianity, do you believe the Bible's the word of God? Most people don't. They believe it. it has a lot of good stuff in there, but it's not God's final word by any means. It has tons of errors. Do you really believe Jesus is the only way? No, I think if you're sincere, almost any way is good. Most Christians don't believe there's a devil. Most Christians don't believe there's a hell. 
Most Christians do not believe that you need to evangelize, that you need to share Jesus with people that they might be saved. Now, if you're sitting here going, I can't believe this. Okay, very simply, in the last 12 months, how many people have you led to Christ? You see, you do what you believe. If you really believe you've got to stay on one side of the road and not go over on the other side of the road because cars will, you, you stay on that side of the road. Because you believe if I go on the other side, I'm going to get in a wreck and die. You, you do do what you believe. And it's very simple. If you really believe Jesus is the only way to salvation and people must be born again to be saved, then you are sharing your faith all the time. But if you really don't believe that, then you haven't shared the Lord in the last 12 months. Do you believe you have to read the Bible every day? Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Meditating God's word daily that you prosper in all that you do. Most Christians don't read their Bibles. This is what the statistics are showing. And it's interesting, and, and most, denom- most denominations across the board, they don't believe there's a literal Adam, a literal flood, a literal virgin birth. And they, most, most people don't even think it's significant whether Jesus died and rose again or not. It's, it's irrelevant. Now, what, why am I saying that? Because, guys, if that is really what people believe, there's not a reality to what we're talking about here. Let's just all throw our Bibles in the trash and go drink a beer on the beach. Because this is ridiculous exercise. Worshiping God is stupid. Sitting here listening to a sermon is ridiculous. If there's not a reality in this, there is absolutely no reason to show up here on Sunday morning and go through this. And so Paul is, is here saying, look, there is a spiritual reality. I understand we're in a physical realm. We can't see it, touch it, taste it, look at it. Because we're in this physical body, we're limited by time and space. We see in part, we know in part. I, I understand all of the, the difficulties in walking by faith and in the reality that God tells us is reality. But here he's saying, if you are a born-again believer, then a reality happened to you. And that reality is that you've died to sin, and if you're a born-again believer, you can't continue in a life of sin. Look back in verse 1. So we continue in sin. That is in the present active. It's, it's saying, if you would, a lifestyle of sin. The first 14 verses of chapter 6, it's talking about the lifestyle of sin. The, verse 15 through 23 that we'll be looking at another time, it's talking about Occasional sin affecting us. But we're not talking about the occasional sin that affects us today. We're talking about living in a lifestyle of sin. And he's saying it's impossible to continue in a life of sin if you're born again because you've died to sin. And therefore, it's impossible to live any longer in it. Now, in verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into the death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6. Knowing this, this is a verse over and over, a term we see over and over in chapter six here, knowing, knowing this, the reality of this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so Paul is saying, you did something in the physical realm Because you were saying, I believe in a spiritual reality that I can't see, but I'm doing this in the physical realm because I believe that that spiritual reality exists. And so we we do several of these things. One of them is, is water baptism. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's the baptism into his death. There's the baptism into the body of Christ. 
There's the word baptism is used many different times, not always meaning being dunked under water. The word baptism of itself just means to be fully submerged or it to fully affect you. And if it is really fully affecting you, then do this physical thing to represent the spiritual reality and that you have gotten the spiritual reality. So, for example, we see John the Baptist baptism. Now, John the Baptist baptism was different than the baptism we have today in the book of Acts and onward after Christ raised from the dead. But, but John the Baptist was saying, you're all sinners. Now, not all the Jews believed that at the time. But John preached to convince people they were all sinners. And the people that came out, they finally said, before I heard you preach, John the Baptist, I did not believe in the reality that I was a sinner. But you're telling me that God is telling me the reality is I'm a sinner. And after hearing you preach, John the Baptist, I believe in God's reality. Even though I, I can't fully feel it, and I don't 100% see it, but I believe that God says I'm a sinner and it's affecting me spiritually right now and I want to repent. And John says, come over here. The spirituality that you are a sinner needing to repent I baptize you. Now your eyes will be open to see the Messiah when he appears because you are broken over your sinful condition. Now when the Pharisees showed up and they came down to get baptized, what did John the Baptist say to those Pharisees? I'm not baptizing you guys. Because the spiritual reality of repentance has not touched you. You have not really repented. You just wanted to get baptized to be popular with the people. And so since the spiritual reality of a brokenness over sin has not truly happened to you, and you know it and I know it, I'm not baptizing you. Now, if you really do repent and the spirituality of repentance does break your heart, I'll baptize you, but I'm not going to just do this. This isn't some religious thing that has no significance. This physical thing is representing a spiritual thing that has great significance. And I, I, I don't want you just to go through some religious thing. God doesn't want it. I won't be a part of it. Now, as we go through the Bible, we see this consistently. Here's Abraham. <laughs> this guy over in Nazaria, Iraq, in the Ur of the Chaldees. And God speaks to him. He was in this pagan culture and he says, go and go to a land you don't know of and he finally gets over to the promised land and God begins to speak to him and he's like, wow, there's a spiritual realm and God's speaking to me. I can't tell you exactly how he just spoke to me. You know, was it verbal? Yeah, it seemed sort of verbal, but I, I don't know. But he, either way, he communicated to me and I'm different. I'm different now since God spoke to me and he stacked up rocks. Every time he had this spiritual reality, he stacked up rocks. Part of it was to remind him when you get stuck in this physical realm, hey, there's a spirituality and this is what God says it is even though you don't see it and feel it at this moment. It's true. But it was also to show his kids. His kids, come here, son. Look over here. I'm gonna pull this brush out of the way. See that pile of rocks right there? Well, yeah, somebody stacked those up. That was me. You know, I used to be this way, this way, and this way, and this way. You've not seen me that way, son, but... That's the way I was. But God spoke to me. It didn't happen in an instant. It took several decades. But now I'm this way because of that moment in time when God brought me into a spirituality that I was not living in. And we can go throughout the Bible and there's these spiritualities. And, and Paul is saying, were you baptized? Now when you were baptized then you should have already been believing, receiving the spiritual reality of what Christ on the cross has done. Now we go back to chapter five. Remember chapter five, we saw that Abraham, the federal head of all men, when he sinned, every one of us kids after Adam, did I say Abraham? Adam, excuse me, Adam, I was testing you to see if you're listening. And those who didn't get it, you flunked. I met Adam. And, uh, and Adam, when he sinned, every one of his kids after him 
was, was born of his sinful nature. Ultimately, physical death is the reality of that sin. And, and God says that all of us, even though we can't see it, we were in Adam when he sinned. Well, I wasn't born until thousands of years after Adam. Yeah, you know, God's not limited by time and space as we are. It's, it's not a significant thing to him as it is us. And in the spiritual realm, when Adam's sinned, he plagued all of mankind from that point forward to be in a sinful body, struggling with sin, pain, suffering, grieving our wives and our kids and our family and our friends because of this yucky, sinful, selfish, lustful, covetous self. And then we die. (laughs) That's what happened with Adam. He affected everybody. Well, Jesus, the second Adam, the Bible tells us that in a spiritual sense, we were in him also. And so when Christ died, in a spiritual sense, we can't understand until we're with the Lord. When he died, we also died. And that sin nature that was plaguing us from Adam, those who now believe in Jesus can stop that plague. And when Christ died, that sin nature of ours died. How does it describe it here? It says that our old man, in verse 6, our old man was crucified with him. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you got to crucify yourself. You know, the Bible does not say that. I mean, you think about it, it's not even possible. I mean, let's say you got the first nail and you did the feet thing okay. Got it in the feet. And then you say you start with the, you know, if you're right hand, you start with the left hand, boom. And you know, oh, how did I get this last hand on? You, you can't crucify yourself. The Bible doesn't even say to crucify yourself. The Bible said you've already been crucified. What do we do with the cross now? We deny ourselves, we take it up, and we walk with it. We live with the crucifixion. In chapter 12, he's going to say, give your body as a living sacrifice. What we need to understand is not that we need to crucify ourselves. We need to understand that our old man already has been crucified in Christ. And when he died, he conquered our sin nature. And when he rose again, that he rose again, as it says here at the end of verse 4, that we can now walk in a newness of life. At the end of verse 5, that we can now walk in the likeness of his resurrection. The end of verse 6, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Let's do that again. End of verse 4, that we can walk now in the newness of the life. That's what the resurrection speaks of. Into verse 5, that we can now be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul talks a lot about living in the resurrected power. And in verse 6, that we're no longer slaves of sin. That there is a reality of of Christians that we need to, to, to understand that sin is not reigning over us anymore. It's not supposed to be. That there is a reality that you need to come to. And this, if you've been baptized in water, you've... You, in essence, in being baptized with water, said, I understand that. I, I live in that reality. I believe that reality. The old man's dead. I'm walking now in a newness of life. And so he says at the end of verse 6 there, the old man's been crucified and the body of sin, notice here, might be done away with that you should no longer be slaves of sin. So we understand here a very important aspect. Even though the reality is true, you have to put faith in that reality. How are we all saved? In Ephesians 2, it tells us we are saved when we put faith in the grace of God. Not of our works. It's a gift of God. So in essence, I could say to all men, You should be saved. Because Christ paid the penalty of your sins. There's no reason for you not to be born again. So I can go and preach to a crowd saying, you should all be born again. But 
Does that mean everybody in the crowd is born again? No, they have to receive the grace of God, don't they? They have to put their faith in the work of Christ. Well, now we can say to Christians, Christians, if you believed in the grace of God to save you, put faith in the grace of God now to conquer these pestering little sins. Definitely believe in God to stop that sinful life. Christ already conquered that. And so what do we find in the Bible? We, we find that, that God sees it clearly for us. So, you know, when you're raising kids, if you would, they can't always see it clearly for themselves, can they? You know, you, you, you tell the four-year-old kid, you're going to take piano lessons. Ah, they can't see it. Son, one day you'll be 15 years old and man, you'll be playing these beautiful songs and the four-year-old kid gets it. And so you sort of got to see it for them and then continue to force them to see it, you know? And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, you know? Sometimes they end up taking karate instead. Can't play the piano, but they can break boards at 15 or whatever, you know? But either way, you, you as a parent try to figure out what's best for them and you... God, in essence, sees this for us. And this is why when when God talks about us, he sees us in the completed place. So God says, for example, we're saved. Now, when you look in the mirror, do you go, man, you're saved. Or do you look in the mirror going, am I saved? Because we don't really look saved all the time, do we? Because really the completion of saved is being in our brand new bodies in heaven with the Lord. Are we in our brand new bodies in heaven with the Lord? No, we're not. But we are that confident because Christ said right here at the end of verse five that grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life. And so therefore, he who began that good work is gonna complete it. He's never gonna leave us nor forsake us. When we're faithless, he's going to remain faithful, right? And so as, as believers, we say, okay, if you say I'm saved, I believe, I've already seen it, Brian. I've already seen it. I've already seen you in your brand new body in heaven with me. You're saved, man. Whew. Okay, thank you, Lord. And then he says, you're justified, just as if you've never sinned. You look in the mirror, so I'm, I can't even tell that I've ever sinned. We don't see it, do we? But Christ has already seen it. And he's already seen us sanctified. Sanctified is what has happened, what the righteousness God has put into our hearts. We actually see the righteousness in our hands, in our feet, in our mouth, in our minds, in our attitudes. Now, do I see a perfect sanctified life? No, but Christ already has seen it. So he says you're saved you're justified, you're sanctified. And we're gonna get to chapter eight and he's gonna say you're glorified. That's with the Lord for billions of years in heaven. I've already seen it. You're already glorified together with me. And so here the the Lord is saying that this is the reality, but you have to believe in it and apply it to your life. So the next time some sin is reigning in your mortal body, you say, this isn't right. Righteousness is the reign in this mortal body. And, and I understand this world, fleshly world, doesn't understand my spiritual reality, but I rebuke you, Satan. <laughs> I rebuke you, world. This is the reality that Christ has given me through his death and resurrection. And so maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what, that's where I am right now. I've got some sins that are just grieving me and my wife and my kids and and they're weighing me down and I'm not fruitful. And, you know, you got to understand that that grace is God washing you in his love and his forgiveness. But Galatians 6 says, God will not be mocked whatever a man sows that he'll also reap. And so we can see the reality of the effects of sin, huh? 
And so in essence, I could say to you, stop your sin before you destroy your liver. (laughs) I mean, God's not going to forgive me? No, he loves you even though you have a destroyed liver. Stop before you destroy your marriage. I mean, God's not going to love me anymore if my marriage ends. God's going to love you if you're married. That's not the point. You're destroying your life. That which should be fruitful and precious, Satan is just destroying it. You don't need to let sin keep grieving you or your family or keeping yourself in being fruitful and the person you need to be. You don't have to allow sin to reign in your flesh unto, as we're going to continue to study, unto a very degrading and destructive way. And so he's saying here, if if you've been baptized, this should have been the reality. And and I'll just simply say, maybe you were baptized as a baby. We don't see that in the Bible, guys. There's nowhere in the Bible babies are baptized. And I don't think a baby can understand this reality. Maybe you were baptized as a young child. You're going, man, you know, the pastor told me one day I want to get re-baptized when I really understand what I'm doing. Let the little children come unto me, Jesus said. I, I don't think we should hinder children from being baptized even though they'll understand morally, more with a more fully developed brain. Or maybe you're here today going, you know what? I really need to rededicate my life to Christ. And, and, and for me, even though I was baptized, I understood what I did 10, 15 years ago, I, I need to die to that old sinful nature again. I, I need to, to stop and say, Lord, I receive your reality of your crucifixion and resurrection and to get baptized again. If that's your heart, right afterwards, come up here, myself and Bill and some of the pastors will be here to take one minute of your time to tell you how to get ready for tonight to be baptized. But going back here in verse seven, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So he's basically saying, you can see this in the physical realm, right? So, you know, I, I don't want you to feel bad if I pick on your sin, but I'm going to pick on smokers for a minute, okay? And, I, you know, I don't want you to say, oh, Brian thinks I'm a horrible sinner because I smoke. I, I don't, okay? So people ask me, it's like, will you go to hell if you smoke? No, but you just smell like you've been there. But that's a whole other point. That's a whole other point. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I... Smoking sort of is a picture of what we all wrestle with. You know, that 12-year-old kid who picked up that first cigarette, you know, probably did understand this is addictive. You know, he probably understood that I'll be 35 years old one day wishing I could stop and it's going to be hard for me to stop. But right now, I'm 12 years old and leaning up against a drugstore, smoking this cigarette, I look cool. And the cool factor outweighs every other factor at this moment. Even though he's sort of in the back of his brain knows this is going to be sort of a negative thing in his life eventually, it does have one positive thing. Matter of fact, I think smoking only has one positive thing ever. And that is it looks cool when you're younger. But once you quit looking young, it just, it looks disgusting. Okay. But either way, there you are. And you're smoking, and, and you finally decide one day, you know, my wife's saying I'm killing my kids with my secondhand smoke. And, uh, the, you know, I tried to jog the other day, and I had to have some 70-year-old lady give me mouth-to-mouth. That was gross. And, uh, you know, I, I'm realizing now this really has to end. I can't afford it anyway. They raise cigarette price again. Can't take out a second on my house again. My park is down, so I have to quit smoking. And you try to stop. And you realize, in my mind, it was going to be this hard to smoke, stop, but I realize it's in a proportion. I, I don't know how to stop. And I can't stop. And you try the patches, you try the gum, you know, you get elected as president and move into the White House. You still can't stop. And... <laughs> And you're at a point going, ah, what, what do I do about this? Now, let me tell you something. Nobody can look their nose at you and going, well, it's your own dumb fault. We are all been addicted that way. Not necessarily smoking, 
there's just so many things to choose from. <laughs> you know, we, we, can, we can go all kinds of physical things, but there's emotional things. And, but we get in that place of, of being addicted to whatever, and we want to stop, and we think we stop, and then we start. And then we, we get to that place, but there comes a point where you say, you just sort of come to the end of yourself saying, I have to die to this. Now, let's say you try to quit smoking and you can't. You die. Hopefully not lung cancer, but you die. And I go down to the morgue and you're laying on a slab and I say, you want a cigarette? They have now officially quit smoking. (laughs) Because once you die you have finally conquered the sins of your flesh. You now stop smoking. And this is what Paul is saying, is that this has happened in the spiritual realm. We have died to our, to to sin reigning over us. It's a dead issue. God has accomplished this in the cross. You are now freed from sin. And in verse 8, he goes on to say, now, If we died with Christ, if that reality took place, and it should have if you're born again believer here today, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So just like Jesus in his death and resurrection, verse 11, likewise you also. So we can go back and read verses 8 through 10 and say, I'm giving Jesus as an example, but that's exactly you. You no longer have to re-die to sin. It's dead. You also now just simply need, notice verse 11, to reckon, to declare, to by faith believe the work of the finished work of Christ on the cross and reckon yourself dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Live in that reality. Believe the reality that God gives us, the spirituality. In verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it happen. That you should obey it in its lust. Do not, and here he's gonna get very practical, verse 13, do not present your members, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your brain, your mouth, as instruments of unrighteousness as sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So every day we wake up, we wake up to the resurrection power. God, I'm living today, my hands, my feet, I'm yours. And in verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So in essence, he, he, he says here, wherever you're at in the process of this, you're not under law, you're under grace. So you're not in front of the judge with the giant gavel getting ready to be mad at you. You're not under the law, you're under grace. You're under a God with a giant smile on his face with a giant you know, fire hose of grace upon your life. Until this becomes a reality, until you have died to sin, until sin is no longer ringing in your flesh, God is 100% always for you. He's never against you. We're gonna get to Romans 8. There's no condemnation to those in Christ. That God loves us and will not stop loving us wherever you're at. But God's desire, as we finish chapter six, the next time we get into chapter seven, we're gonna realize the the reality that you can walk holy, that you can walk in righteousness, that you no longer have to be slaves of sin, that you can be living in a life that's fruitful and righteous and a blessing to yourself and everybody around you. But until that happens, God doesn't want some heavy, stressed out, religious thing happening to you. Until that reality of the crucified life of Christ is in you. He wants you to know you're under grace. 
not under the law. Let's bow our heads this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word today. And we do know that there are some powerful things here that you're wanting to, to speak into our life. And we ask in Jesus' name right now that if there's any here this morning that are not born again, have not received you, that today they would wake up and realize, I need this gospel of grace. I need the crucified life applied to me. I want to to be dead to my old sinful flesh that's just becoming the, the undoing of me and my family and my brain and my health and everything else. Lord, I give my life to you. Surrender yourself to him right now. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I've been doing exactly what Paul said not to do, sinning that grace might abound, and this is wrong. This is not what Christ has preached, and this is what I've tried to believe is the reality. It's not. Sin is causing me to to be a slave to it, and I need to end this today. Then rededicate your life, and right now, just cry out in your heart. Dear God, I believe in you. Forgive me for my sinfulness. Forgive me for my unrighteous deception of believing in a reality that's not your reality. I believe your word. I believe in your death and resurrection. I believe, Lord, that you are God and all your word is true. And I want to live this point forward, whether it's with your word or with prayer or how I live my life in a holy way. I want to live the way you, Lord, would have me to live before you. Forgive me of my sin. I surrender my life to your will, to your desire. Cleanse me, wash me, heal me. I'm yours today. And if you prayed that prayer today, afterwards you can come up. We'd like to talk with you and encourage you and pray with you and just love on you and and to give you that opportunity to, to just say, yeah, that's me. I prayed that prayer with you today. Lord, bless all all of us today that have been washed in the word of God washing us in your word, preparing us to meet you face to face, strengthen our lives, and again, bless today to make it a joyful day for all the dads. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.